You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Two quick notes before we get started. First of all, this episode is a bit bluer than usual, so if you are of the opinion that this show is already on the verge of being too dirty generally, then this will probably cross the line for you. I would suggest thinking twice about playing it for kids, for instance. At least give it a listen first. Secondly, I'm going to suggest one more time that you download and listen via the Vodacast app so that you can get access to images and articles related to this episode. Vodacast is just like whatever podcatcher you already use, but with that option for creators like me to add tertiary content and the option for listeners like you to view it. Get it on the App Store, Google Play, or by following the link in the show notes. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Hold on to your butts. I've got a riddle for you. Not just a riddle, but a riddle about a riddle. A meta-riddle. Ugh. Has the prefix meta finally been ruined for all time? Mm, whatever. The first riddle, the riddle nestled within the riddle, comes from the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And it involves everyone's third or fourth favorite historimythical superhuman strongman, Samson. Now, Samson, ooh, Samson is a hard man to love. He's ostensibly a hero, ostensibly a good guy, but it's pretty difficult to reach that conclusion just by reading his story. He's also supposed to be a wise leader, which, again, almost totally unsupported by the text. A surface reading of scripture instead seems to reveal Samson as an almost unspeakably bad dude, and not so bright either. Maybe you think I'm being too hard on the guy, but if you do, hold on a minute and listen first to the story of Samson's riddle. Samson wanted to get married and he particularly wanted to marry a Philistine. Samson had a peculiar thing about Philistines where he really hated the Philistine men, but wouldn't stop slavering over the Philistine women, which should probably set off some alarm bells, I think. Samson's parents were like, why can't you find a nice Nazarite girl to settle down with? But Samson wouldn't listen. No, no, he wanted a Philistine. So he goes out and finds one and marries her, and we'll come back to that in a minute because I don't want to give away the answer to the riddle. For now, we'll pick the story up at Samson's wedding feast, held in the Philistine city of Timnah. Samson, being a wise and just man, is surprised and angered to find that at his Philistine wedding to a Philistine woman, there are, get this, Philistines. 
30 Philistine men in total who Samson presumably would like to murder in cold blood as was customary for the dude. But it's his wedding after all and the men are guests of his new wife so he very wisely and justly determines not to slay them where they stand. Instead, he presents them with a bet. If, he says, the 30 Philistines can answer a riddle, he'll give them each a new outfit. But if they can't figure it out by the end of the week-long feast, they instead will have to give him new outfits, one from each of them, 30 sets of clothes for Samson. The Philistines think it sounds like a pretty good deal, 30 of them working together for seven days on one riddle, how could they lose? So they say, sure, let's hear it. And all right, here it is, ready? Samson says to the 30 Philistines the following, Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. Any guesses? And no cheating! If you already know the answer because you remember the story, then you'll also remember that you really shouldn't cheat. So, hands down all you Bible and or Torah scholars, yes, I'm talking to you, David, for the rest of you, one more time, here is the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. You figure it out? Well, neither did the Philistines. They puzzled over it for three days, and then, still having no solution, they decided to cheat. They approached Samson's new wife and asked her to seduce the answer out of her husband. She's like, why should I? To which they respond, because you're a Philistine like us, and anyway, if you don't, we'll burn down your house and your dad's too. Little extreme, sure, but I never said this story would make you like the Philistines, just that it wouldn't make you like Samson. For the next few days, Samson's wife tried to pry the answer out of him, but Samson wouldn't divulge it. He said, I haven't even told my parents, why should I tell you? Which is just the sort of thing a new bride loves to hear. But eventually, Samson gave in and gave up the solution, which she promptly whispered to the 30 Philistines. On the seventh day, they recited for Samson the answer. This enraged Samson, who accused them of sleeping with his wife to get the answer. I told you you wouldn't like the guy, but wait until you hear the way he put it. He said, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. That's charming. And not the end of Samson's wisdom and justice. He lost the bet, one way or the other, but he didn't have the 30 outfits he promised. So, to make good on his debt, he did what anyone in that situation would do. He wandered down to another Philistine town, Ashkelon, and murdered 30 totally innocent, ignorant, uninvolved people with his bare hands. Then he stripped the clothes off of their fresh corpses, came back to Timnah, and said, Here you go, 30 shirts as promised, soaked in the blood of your countrymen. And then... Just in case you were on the fence about this dude, he turned to his best man, pointed to his wife, and said, I don't want this anymore. You can have her. And so he did. The end. Anyone want to take a crack at the moral of that story? Don't be a Philistine is as good as I can work out. It's fine, though. We're not here for the moral. We're here for the riddle of Samson's riddle. To get at it, let's look at the base riddle once more. Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And here is the answer, which the 30 Philistines extorted out of Samson's wife, who seduced it out of Samson. Listen carefully, because it reads... Yeah, well, just listen carefully. They answered Samson, 
What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? Confused? You won't be after this. Flashback to before the wedding. Samson traveled to Timna to meet his fiancée to be, and on his way was attacked by a lion, which he tore apart with his bare hands. Then he met the young woman, decided to marry her, and returned home. On the way back for the wedding and the feast, he came upon the lion's rent carcass and discovered a swarm of bees inside of it. So Samson reached his hand in, grabbed up a few heaping globs of honey, and kept on his way, snacking as he went along and even giving some to his parents as a gift. There you go. Out of the strong eater came something sweet to eat: honey from a lion. Now. I'm going to assume that the weird phrasing of the riddle and the answer is lost in translation. I don't understand why the question is the answer and the answer is the question, but maybe Bronze Age Canaanites were Jeopardy fans. Who's to say? So let's pare the riddle down to its basic structure and translate it into a form we're familiar with. Q. How do you get something sweet out of something strong? A. You get honey out of the body of a lion. Now it is time for the meta riddle. Was Samson's riddle fair? Which is to say, the Philistines cheated, but was there any honest way that they could have come up with the solution? Was the answer theoretically available to them, or was Samson cheating too? Again, a surface reading indicates no. No, the riddle wasn't fair. Samson didn't tell anybody about killing the lion or about finding the bees inside of it. The text says specifically that when he offered honey to his parents, he did not tell them where he got it. To answer the riddle, you had to know about the bees inside the lion, but Samson was the only person who did. Seems like a riddle a five-year-old would come up with, right? It's obviously not fair. To answer Samson's riddle, the Philistines would have to know about the bees and the lion. Samson didn't tell anybody about finding the bees and the lion. Ergo, nobody could have answered the riddle, right? Well, maybe. It's clear that the riddle was, at the very least, quite difficult. Thirty Philistines couldn't figure it out with a week to workshop, after all. And to a modern reader or listener, it's totally unanswerable. But there's a chance that, despite all appearances to the contrary, Samson's riddle was in fact fair. That chance comes down to the answer to another question: How did the bees get in the lion? I realize this is getting more absurd by the minute, but bear with me here. How did the bees get inside the carcass of the lion? Does that question? Even make sense to you? Probably not, because you know a little bit about bees. I'm sure, and knowing a little bit about bees means that there are only two possible answers: either a, a queen bee flew into the carcass and made a nest there, or b, none of this happened at all. Samson didn't rip a lion asunder, and he didn't find bees inside of it, and he didn't grab a fistful of honey from within. Those are the possibilities available to you. A human living in the 21st century who knows a little bit about bees and maybe a bit about lions as well. If instead you were a human living in 1100 BC, like Samson or his parents or his Philistine wife or the 30 Philistine men, then you might have known some different things about bees 
and some different things about lions, which might have allowed you a third possibility. I should say that this is not a sure thing. Biblical scholars have long debated exactly what was up with Samson's riddle, and the whole story, because even by biblical terms, it is a really fucked up story, right? Like, for starters, why did God empower Samson to murder 30 innocent Philistines? What is that supposed to teach us? That God's vengeance is modular? That whatever number of Philistines cheat you, you're welcome to kill that same number of Philistines at your leisure? Is that justice? On the other hand, this sequence of events eventually leads to Samson's downfall. But on the other other hand, Samson's downfall comes with an even greater act of senseless violence, where he brings down a Philistine temple around him, killing 3,000 people, most of whom presumably are also innocent. So, uh, I don't even want to get into it. Aside from the perplexing morality of the story of Samson's riddle and the story of Samson writ large, there's still the question of the riddle itself, particularly whether it was fair or not. Some scholars have argued that the riddle that comes down to us in the book of Judges is not the original riddle, that the original riddle was something more sensible, which was twisted, contorted, or altogether replaced by the seeming non sequitur we're talking about here. It's unsettling to most Jewish, Christian, and Muslim scholars to think that Samson, the wise and just hero of this story, could have cheated and thrown out an unanswerable riddle, even though, to me, that seems perfectly in line with who Samson was. An asshole. But let's assume that the riddle we've got is the actual one Samson asked, and let's assume that it was fair. Is that possible? The answer, finally, is a very qualified yes. One way the riddle could be fair comes to us from James L. Crenshaw, professor of the Old Testament at Duke University, who has argued that the riddle is fair because it's not actually about the lion and the honey at all. Instead, says Crenshaw, the riddle is, quote, a veiled allusion to the sex act. The riddle uses the ciphers eater and strong one for the groom. Similarly, food and sweetness signify semen, which is sweet to the bride who eats the sperm. From man proceeds sperm which nourish woman. From a strong man goes semen that is pleasant to a wife. So, that's one theory. Not sold? Me neither. Man, we're going to talk about sperm a lot in this episode. Hope you're ready for that. Oh, have I danced around this enough or what? Okay, I'm sorry. Let's get down to it. I don't think Crenshaw's honey as semen explanation is right, but I do think that the riddle was probably fair because, as I said, there's another way that the bees could have gotten inside the lion, which Samson and the Philistines may have known. It was a belief that was so commonplace for such a long time that it hardly would have needed explaining, but also a belief that's fallen away so hard that people like us today can't even imagine it. My guess is that as far as Samson was concerned, and the Philistines, and Samuel, who theoretically wrote the book of Judges, probably not, the reason that there were bees inside the lion is that bees grew inside of lions. And I mean that as literally as I possibly can. Everyone involved in this story quite possibly believed that if you put a lion corpse out in the sun, bees would spring forth from it out of nowhere, 
born of the rotting flesh of the lion itself. So, when Samson went walking by his kill and discovered bees and honey inside of it, he didn't say, that's weird. Why are there bees hanging out inside this putrid rib cage? He said, all right, lion bees. I should get me some of that lion honey. Samson's riddle didn't depend on knowing about the bees that he found in his lion. It only depended on knowing that bees grew generally in lions, which Samson was reminded of, but which everyone already knew. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and if you are dubiously wondering if we're going to spend this whole episode investigating whether bees grow inside lions, then let me tell you right here, we are going to spend this whole episode investigating whether bees grow inside lions. I mean, not just whether bees grow inside lions, but whether they grow inside cattle, and whether wasps grow inside horses, or whether frogs grow in stinking swamps, or whether mice grow in flannel shirts, or even whether a human being could sprout up spontaneously on a deserted island from the sand and sun. I realize that all of those things sound ridiculous, but get this, the underlying presumption that animals grow spontaneously out of inanimate material is potentially the oldest and most widely believed of all human fallacies. More people believed in this concept than ever believed the Earth is flat. It's an older belief even than astrology. And while it sounds totally absurd and obscure to you today, it's a belief that lasted in one form or another well into the 1800s. So, are we going to spend this whole episode investigating whether bees grow inside lions? Fuck yeah, we are. Today's episode, Something from Nothing. In this day and age, we call the topic at hand spontaneous generation, but virtually no one up until the 1700s did. Because unlike a lot of our subjects, spontaneous generation was not a theory cooked up by someone or ones that spread, was debated, etc. No, for most people, for most of history, there was no need to call spontaneous generation anything, because it was just the way of the world a bunch of loosely interconnected facts that everybody knew. And I mean everybody. Chinese writings from the Shang Dynasty approximately 3,500 years ago say that aphids grow spontaneously out of bamboo. Indian documents from around the same time say flies are born straight from soil. And Babylonian clay tablets from 1800 BC tell about worms being formed out of river mud. Not to mention, of course, the riddle of Samson in the Book of Judges, which was put to writing around 550 BC and which, if you ask me, seems to suggest that the Deuteronomists believed that bees grow out of lions. If you want a little more support for my interpretation, I can give it to you via the begonia. Begonia comes from the ancient Greek words for oxen progeny. The idea is a lot like Samson's riddle. If you were a beekeeper who failed at 
you know, keeping your bees, you could get new ones by growing them inside the body of a dead ox. The specifics of how the ox had to be killed and how or whether the body needed to be treated vary, but the begonia was widely, and I mean widely, believed. You can see a wood carving of the begonia in action via the Vodacast app right now. A short list of Greek and Roman authors who describe the process includes Virgil, Ovid, Pliny, Servius, Isidore of Seville, Plutarch, and Celsus. It's not a sure thing that the ancient Israelites believed the same thing or the variation that makes sense of Samson's riddle, but what is sure is that the Begonia belief spread and persisted through the Christian, Jewish, and Muslim worlds up through the 1600s, in part at least because of Samson's riddle. But let's finally put the riddle and the Begonia aside for a while. I'm afraid that I've focused on it so much so far that I may have obscured the purpose and value of the broader topic. Spontaneous generation was about so much more than bees and oxen and lions. And the best way to begin to illustrate this is to go back to our favorite guy of all the guys. You know the one. The one who gives this show both its most beloved and bemoaned catchphrase. Fucking Aristotle. Oh. In the last month, I have had several real-life listeners ask me in person what my deal with Aristotle is. And since I don't recommend anyone go back and listen to early episodes of this show, please, please don't. Spontaneous generation may be the best way to explain my antipathy for fucking Aristotle. Most people today, other than you, my beautiful, beautiful listeners, think of Aristotle mainly as a philosopher. And as a philosopher, he's, well, he's at least largely unobjectionable. When it comes to political philosophy or ethics or aesthetics, there's no way of getting around the brilliance and import of Aristotle's ideas, whether or not you ultimately agree with him on much. His metaphysics are, uh, to me, a little less wonderful, but as I've said before, he's at least a few steps in the right direction from Plato. And again, his integral value to the history of philosophy is impossible to overstate. If you're interested in philosophy, in any shape or form, you have to know Aristotle, and you have to respect him, too. However, historically, Aristotle was not seen primarily as a philosopher, the way that we would think of a philosopher today. Not to most, at least. His main influence on the world, and I mean like a really big chunk of the world, basically all of Europe, most of Northern Africa, and Western and Southern Asia, lies in his scientific theories. Two words which I am using as broadly as possible because Aristotle's scientific theories are, almost without exception, terrible. Yet, for most of the last 2,000 years, they were taken not just as true with a lowercase t, but as true with an uppercase t. So much so that a large part of the history of science reads more like a history of people slowly screwing up the courage to say, well, fuck Aristotle. We've covered a lot of these sagas. We did a whole episode about Petrus Ramus, who was assassinated for daring to question Aristotle's pedagogy. And we've described in detail the slow and embarrassing fall of Aristotelian physics and astronomy and chemistry, each of which have figured into probably a dozen episodes over the last four years. Is it really four years now? I think so. Wow. Almost happy birthday, Constant. But those things 
The four elements and the geocentric universe and telos and all that garbage, they are as nothing before the feet of Aristotle's most historically influential and presently ignored theories. Aristotle's biology. We have spent time on Aristotle's biology before, too. Earlier this year, we talked about his taxonomy in the episode Are Whales Fish, which I'd recommend listening to because I'm very happy with that one. And way back in, I want to say, our second season, we talked about his biology in our episode about reproduction, which was called Let's Talk About Sex, Babies, which I was very proud of at the time, but it has been a good while, so I don't make any promises about its quality now. We've also mentioned some of Aristotle's more obnoxious one-off biological ideas, like that men have more teeth than women, or his theory that sharks had their mouths below their snouts in order to keep them from eating everything in the ocean. But there's no better way to understand the effect of Aristotle's biological ideas than by looking at spontaneous generation. It is the perfect microcosm of the trouble with Aristotle. Like most of Aristotle's bad ideas, He didn't actually come up with the concept. But like most of Aristotle's bad ideas, he did systematize and create a compelling argument for it. But also like most of his bad ideas, he was a lot more qualified and measured in his support of it than he gets credit for. And finally, like most of Aristotle's bad ideas, the real problem isn't really with Aristotle, but with the people who read Aristotle and how they read Aristotle, which is to say, with slavish devotion. I think that lays all the necessary groundwork, and since you've patiently listened to me go on and on, I am pleased to reward your strength with something sweet. Semen. Aristotle was obsessed with semen. That sounds wrong. What I mean to say is that Aristotle couldn't stop thinking about semen. That's not any better. Aristotle found semen very difficult to get out of his hair. Damn it! I mean, Aristotle found semen perplexing. Is that... Whatever. Good enough. He had a lot of questions about what it was and how it worked, which is natural enough, especially for someone lonely. But one of those questions was very particular and might lead you to believe that when it came to semen, Aristotle was into... Ahem... Empirical observation. The thing about semen that really caught his eye, which is not where you want to catch semen, by the by, what Aristotle noticed was that when he heated semen up, it got thicker, and when he cooled it down, it got thinner. This really baffled him. Most things, he knew, behaved the other way around. They thinned with heat and thickened with cold. Now, milk was an exception. If you put it on a pot over a fire, it thickened as it got hot. But that still wasn't the same, because milk didn't thin when cooled. So, what was the deal with semen? That was my Jerry Seinfeld impression. It's been a long year. The solution Aristotle found for this question-come-paradox, couldn't resist, was much bigger than you'd anticipate. The thinning and thickening properties of jizz didn't just reveal how sex worked, but how life worked and what it was. Semen, Aristotle concluded, was a foam. 
a frothy mixture of liquid and hot air, which Aristotle called santorum. <laughs> I mean, a frothy mixture of liquid and hot air, which Aristotle called pneuma, as in pneumonia and pneumatic. What exactly Aristotle thought pneuma was is frustratingly difficult to pin down. Sometimes he seems to be literally referring to hot air, but that doesn't seem right. He refers to the heat of pneuma as being like the heat that comes from the sun and stars, which would come to be called, variously, the fifth element, quintessence, or ether, which we talked about in Reductio Ad Absurdum, but it doesn't seem like he means that pneuma and ether are one and the same, at least not all of the time. Finally, he also refers to pneuma as being made up of little bits of soul. And that's probably the version that's most important to us, since we're here talking about spontaneous generation. To Aristotle, the foam that is splooge is aerated by pneuma, which either contains or is itself the makings of soul. And soul, the spirit of life, is defined by its heat. As semen is heated, it becomes more potent, more bespittled with pneuma. That makes the foam finer and therefore thicker. But when you cool semen down, it loses pneuma and consequently thins out. As far as Aristotle was concerned, this was a really critical piece of the puzzle for where babies came from. Aristotle had a humongous body of data about animals, both from his own studies and from things he'd heard or read from others. And squaring all of that stuff, a lot of which, by the way, was wrong, into one single, elegant, holistic reproductive system was like having a square peg in a sea of round holes. But Numa did the trick. The biggest obstacle for any theory of reproduction is heritability. Aristotle knew that sometimes babies looked like their fathers. Other times, they looked like their mothers. Still, other times, they had traits resembling their grandparents. And then, there were the instances where they didn't look like anybody in their family tree. That's all true enough, and pretty dang difficult to make sense of if you don't know about Gregor Mendel, let alone DNA. But to Aristotle, and everyone else up until pretty much the 1800s, a theory of reproduction also had to explain two other perceived things. How sometimes animals gave birth to animals of different species, and how some animals were born not from animals at all, but straight out of the ground, or the water, or from rotting vegetable matter, or any great number of other lifeless sources. If that seems weird to you, well, I, I get where you're coming from. But also, come on, think about it. If you leave fruit out on the counter too long, suddenly, out of nowhere, your kitchen fills with fruit flies. Where do they come from? For nearly every person, everywhere in the world, up until astonishingly recently, the answer was, they grow out of the fruit. It's the most obvious way to explain it. And, as we'll find, it is annoyingly difficult to disprove. Flies and maggots suddenly show up on rotting meat because flies and maggots are formed from rotting meat. If you found... This example is really gross, but sorry, we've got to. If you found some sort of parasitic worm in your poop or your livestock or your pets, the only conclusion that made sense for most of human history is that those worms were formed from your or your livestock or your pet's body. You must have, in a real and literal sense, given birth to the worms. 
delicious. Aristotle's semenology satisfied, to him at least, all the requirements for a universal theory of generation, the briefest version of which goes like this. When you eat food, your internal heat, which is to say your soul or pneuma, turns that food into blood. But that same internal heat further turns some of that blood into another substance. Aristotle says males are hotter and therefore superior to females, and so they can turn their blood into the pneuma-rich foam of life, semen. Females, on the other hand, have to settle for making menstrual blood. During sexual reproduction, the semen meets the menstrual blood and gives it form in the same way, and these are Aristotle's words, not mine. Don't yell at me about this. The semen gives form to the menstrual blood as fig juice turns milk into cheese. Longtime listeners will remember and recoil at remembering the phrase cheese baby. Well, it's back. Welcome to you newbies. Cheese baby, cheese baby, cheese baby. The critical thing about the cheese baby analogy is that, so says Aristotle, the milk, a.k.a. the menstrual blood, provides all of the substance, while the juice, a.k.a. the semen, informs the milk-slash-menstrual blood and evaporates. To put it in slightly more modern terms, the semen provides all of the information about what shape the offspring will take, whereas the menstrual blood provides all of the mass, the solid bits to shape. Or, I should say, that's what happens ideally. Ideally, says Aristotle, a child ought to be a perfect replica of his father. But in practice, those darned females get in the way. The coldness of menstrual blood interferes with the perfect cloning process that nature intends. This happens in two different ways. In the most common case, Aristotle says, the menstrual blood conquers the semen. And so some traits of the mother prevail, up to and including sex. But other times, something weirder happens. The coolness of the mother's menstrual blood doesn't quite conquer the heat of the father's semen, but it, and this is Aristotle's word, and it grosses me out, loosens it. The semen, which was specifically trying to recreate the father, is jostled and settles instead for just reproducing a member of his family the child's grandparents. Or it can be loosened even further and produce the traits of any member of the human race. Sometimes, and Aristotle is startlingly blasé about this possibility, the semen is loosened to such a degree that it informs traits from other animals. No, I don't think that he means that. But. Maybe. Anyway, that's how babies work, according to Aristotle. How does that explain the worms in the mud or the worms in your poopies? Well, that's the thing about pneuma. There are bits of it in everything. You and I are filled with little bits of soul, and so is our food, and so is the soil. There's pneuma everywhere. In semen, the business end of insolment, that pneuma is aerated into a vital foam. But semen isn't the only foam, right? There's foam on the ocean. There's foam on the ground sometimes. There's certainly foam in rotting carcasses, like Samson's lion. And all of that foam? It's the same thing as semen. Or at least, it has the same generative properties as semen. 
maybe combined with the heat of the sun, or the mass of the earth, or the former soul stuff of the dead, the many-fold foams of earth can provide form for new life out of the blue. That's where flies come from, and most other insects, although interestingly, not bees. Aristotle's got a whole bunch of other wackiness to explain bees, which I shall spare you. Frogs can be born from mud. Salamanders can be born from fire. Clams, oysters, etc. come right out of sea foam. Eels? Well, let's not even get started on eels. As I've said, Aristotle didn't come up with the idea of life springing forth from inanimate material. It was already a belief widely held by pretty much everyone in the world. But... Like fig juice sprayed seductively into a heifer skin of milk, Aristotle informed spontaneous generation, giving it a shape with rules, logic, and support. To Aristotle's credit, he was very careful about his idea. He listed a relatively small number of animals that could be spontaneously generated, and was careful to say he couldn't absolutely swear to most of them. But as his ideas were passed down, generation after generation, their form was loosened, as if by cooling menstrual blood, and soon enough it turned into a whole different kind of animal. A really, really big one. Did I really just spend 40 minutes talking about Aristotle's cum? What is wrong with me? The Constant is brought to you by Masterclass. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds, anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn scientific thinking from Neil deGrasse Tyson, improve your storytelling skills with Neil Gaiman, or learn conservation from Jane Goodall. With over 100 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. For some reason, I don't know why, I've spent a lot of time at home for the last say, 20 months. So we've been cooking a lot at home, which has become one of my favorite things to do. So I've been checking out Gordon Ramsay's masterclass, which not only brings his signature profanity, which I love so very much, but also his know-how in cooking, who'd have thought? It's really intimate, really personal, full of not only great recipes, but the knowledge that makes those recipes work, which means he helps you start really cooking, not just following instructions. Masterclass has hundreds of lessons on almost anything you could want to learn, with a wide variety of topics all taught by world-class masters at the top of their fields. You can access them on your phone, web, or smart TV, usually in nice, easy 10-minute chunks. Learn how to write anything from a book to a screenplay to a simple letter. Learn to communicate with your boss or your family. How to make a dinner worthy of a Michelin star, or just how to make a really good scrambled egg. This holiday, Give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash the constant today. That's masterclass.com slash the constant. Terms apply. When you pay for a job site, you should know what you're getting. Get Indeed and only pay for quality candidates that meet your must-have requirements. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all of your hiring in one place, even interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, 
Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. Indeed knows how important it is to make the most of your recruiting hours and dollars. With Indeed, you can save time and money by setting your must-have qualifications and only paying for the quality candidates that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. What makes the topic of spontaneous generation different from most of the bad ideas we've handled over the run of this show is that it wasn't an idea, exactly. It wasn't a theory, at least, dreamt up by Aristotle or Galen or Pliny or any of our other usual suspects. Instead, spontaneous generation was generated spontaneously out of the very data that surrounded all people. No one had to come up with the notion that flies emerged out of rotting meat or that frogs came out of putrescent mud. Anyone living around rotting meat and putrescent mud had seen it for themselves. Other times, spontaneous generation was a diagnosis of exclusion. Aristotle, for instance, had said that eels were spontaneously generated out of moist earth, but not everyone agreed with him. Pliny had instead suggested that eels rub their bodies against rocks and that the scales dislodged by this process grew into more eels. Others said that they came from foam, like mussels and oysters did, or that eels formed big, writhing, orgiastic balls that sprayed out a milky substance which fertilized the seafloor with further eels. Some people even said that they spontaneously generated out of already spontaneously generated worms. There wasn't much agreement on how exactly eels reproduced, but there was still agreement that they couldn't be doing things the old-fashioned way. Because when they went looking, people couldn't find any of the typical signs. There were no eel eggs, no eel young, not even any signs of sexual dimorphism. There, too, was a question. Were all eels female or male or both or neither? Depending on who you asked, any of those answers could be correct. Aristotle didn't come up with the idea of spontaneous generation, so why spend so much time talking about him, other than it is my heart's purpose to dunk on Aristotle? Any pre-Socratic philosopher that left behind a record of their beliefs long enough to comb over probably had something to say about spontaneous generation. And Aristotle's contemporaries and those that came after him mostly did too. Lucretius, for example, lived around 300 years after Aristotle and agreed with him on barely anything, including spontaneous generation. Lucretius was an Epicurean and an atomist who rejected Aristotle's ideas of cause and telos and forms and all that rot. So he also rejected Aristotle's ideas of generation, but not the concept of spontaneous generation itself. In fact, Lucretius's view was that all life, 
had been spontaneously generated from the random atomic minglings of the early Earth, but that the motherly power of the planet had slowly exhausted itself, so that now she was capable only of spawning worms and frogs and flies and such, leaving the rest of the animal kingdom to do their own birthing. What makes Aristotle different from Lucretius and all the rest, and more important and more troublesome too, is the usual suite of things that make him important, different, and troublesome. For one, his arguments were more thorough, systematic, and convincing than most philosophers. And, for the other, after the fall of Rome, everyone who could listen to him listened to him. There are two terms I use somewhat often in this show that are pretty problematic the Christian or European Dark Ages, and the Muslim Golden Age. Lots of historians who are much smarter and wiser than me really bristle at terms like that, and I get why. They're full of baggage, they're reductive, and more often than not, historically, they've been used to center the European experience as privileged and special. But I think, and I could very well be wrong, I've thought a lot about this, but I don't entirely trust my instincts here, so feel free to make the counter-argument for me, please, but I think the Christian Dark Ages and the Muslim Golden Age can do the opposite and help remind the mostly European-influenced audience that Christianity wasn't the dominant military, intellectual, scientific, or philosophical force that simple historical narratives often imply it was. One of my favorite stories for illuminating the gap between the Christian and Muslim worlds during the supposed dark-slash-golden ages is the exchange between the Abbasid Caliph Harun al-Rashid and Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne in 807 AD. As a show of peace and fellowship, al-Rashid sent to Charlemagne a host of gifts, the most magnificent of which was a water-powered mechanical clock. The descriptions of this clock are truly incredible. It had brazen brass balls that fell on every hour, crashing against cymbals that sounded the time, and at noon, 12 mechanical horsemen would appear out from tiny windows and ride out to herald the sun. You can see a woodcut of it via the Vodacast app right now. In response to this fantastic, amazing, brilliant clock, and you know how I feel about clocks, Charlemagne gave al-Rashid the best he could offer. Some rugs. Red rugs, specifically. Christendom wouldn't have the ability to make a clock like al-Rashid's for the better part of 500 more years. The gulf between the two was massive, not just in clockmaking or technology more generally, but in medicine, in music, in mathematics, and literature, and painting, and sculpture, and philosophy, and science, and you name it. And one of the biggest reasons for that difference is that the Muslim world had access to the classics, to Greek, Roman, African, and Asian writings, while the Christian one had lost that after the fall of Rome. Of course, this also means that the many fallacies and errors of the classics, particularly looking at you, Aristotle, were drip-fed straight into the Islamic intelligentsia, which you might figure would give the Christians a small silver lining. But not really, because in large part the Christian intelligentsia, or what passed for it, were living off the scraps of the Muslim one. Christian Europe couldn't read Aristotle in full, but occasionally they'd get little snippets from the writings of Muslim polymaths like Alhazen, Avicenna, or Al-Biruni. Not only were these snippets incomplete and indirect, they were also translated between three, four, or even five languages by the time Europeans got to them. 
Aristotle's theory of spontaneous generation is a perfect example of how imperfect this process was. Back in the late 300s, the Roman politician and philosopher Themistius, who had dedicated much of his education to Aristotle, identified a problem with his theory of spontaneous generation. In Aristotle's metaphysics, he had expressed, over and over and in great detail, a doctrine about cause and effect. According to Aristotle, a thing could only be changed or made or generated by another thing if it had the potential to be that thing in the first place. Fire heats metal, but only because metal already has the potential for heat in its nature. Similarly, Aristotle said that humans give birth to humans, because the menstrual blood and semen of the parents each have the potential for humanity inside of them. Both sides of that equation are important. Let's take one of Aristotle's favorite examples, the carpenter. In order for a carpenter to make a chair, they must not only set out with the purpose of making a chair, but the wood that they use must also have the potential for being a chair. For metal to be hot, it must both have the potential to be hot and be acted upon by something which is already hot. The Mistius couldn't square this with spontaneous generation. If bees came out of dead cows, where does the potential for bees come from, and what bee-like thing acts upon it? If spontaneous generation were random, that would be one thing, but according to Aristotle and everybody else, remember, spontaneous generation had rules. Dead cows make bees. Dead horses make wasps. Always. Now, how could that be? The Mistius wrote that Aristotle quote, overlooked the many animals that are not born from their likes, in spite of their great numbers. For we see a kind of wasp is born from the bodies of dead horses, bees from dead cows, frogs from putrescence when it becomes sour. Unless a suitable formal principle had already been put into nature previously, ready to create any possible species of animal, and having found a proper material for creating a certain animal from it, the individual would not have been brought into actuality. In the 12th century, towards the end of the Muslim Golden Age, one of its greatest minds, Ibn Rushd, otherwise known as Averroes, found Themistius's kink in Aristotle's hose very disturbing. As we've talked about with Averroes before, in addition to his thoughts on theology, law, medicine, math, astronomy, and nearly everything else, Averroes was the king of Aristotle stands, even more so than Thomas Aquinas. Whereas Aquinas did a lot of work contorting Aristotle to line up with Christian doctrine and contorting Christian doctrine to line up with Aristotle, Averroes took his Aristotle straight up no chaser. So, squaring the apparent contradiction between Aristotle's metaphysics and his biology was critical. Luckily, the solution to Themistius' riddle seemed even easier to Averroes than getting honey from a lion. The answer, Averroes thought, was astrology. There's debate about whether Averroes thought he was creating a fresh justification or if he believed Aristotle had meant to appeal to astrology in the first place. All things being equal, the latter seems more likely. In Aristotle's physics, he added a strange clause to one of his most famous sayings. Usually, Aristotle said, man begets man. But in physics, he amended that to man begets man and the sun does too. What the hell Aristotle meant by that is anybody's guess, but Averroes took it to mean that the sun and the stars have the same formational power as semen. 
Averroes probably thought that Aristotle was talking about astrology, the way the distance, heat, cold, dryness, and dampness of different heavenly bodies affect life on Earth. Because Averroes didn't realize that Aristotle died a short while before astrology made it to Greece. And because it was a really elegant, simple, commonsensical answer to Themistius' problem. The bodies, living, dead, or inanimate, that gave rise to spontaneously generated creatures had the potential for new life, but could only be acted upon by certain astrological conditions, which determined the form that life took. Essentially, Averroes said that while a bull carcass wasn't like a bee, its star sign was like a bee. Now we get back to the difference between the Muslim Golden Age and the Christian Dark Ages, because Averroes' very creative but barely supported version of Aristotle's spontaneous generation was the only version that European Christians had access to until they finally rediscovered the original writings of Aristotle. But by then, Averroes' ideas were so ingrained that Europe just took them as a given conclusion, presuming, against all good reason for doubt, that his take was what Aristotle had meant. So, medieval Europe, with its slavish reverence for Aristotle and the inescapable influence of Averroes, had a somewhat novel version of spontaneous generation to work with. The astrological influence of the heavens moves in the soul-rich matter of the earth to produce a new life where no life like it was before. That meant you could get frogs from the ground, yes, but it also meant you could get bees from a lion, or parasitic worms from a dog, or wasps from a fig, or this, or that, or the other. See, the other part of Aristotle that was breaking down with the Christians who worshipped him was his hesitancy. Aristotle had been quick to say that he wasn't sure about this or that, or that this appeared to be true, but he couldn't promise. But with folks like Averroes and Aquinas taking his writings as inerrant, none of that caution or doubt was called for. Anything Aristotle said was true, and anything he sort of said was also true. Even things that Aristotle thought were probably wrong were often decided to be right just by virtue of him bringing them up and not strictly ruling them out. So, in medieval Europe, the number of creatures that could be spontaneously generated ballooned as if Aristotle accidentally set a private Facebook event to public. The addition of the heavens into the equation of spontaneous generation strengthened the idea because it allowed it to explain even more phenomena. Where did fossils come from? Well, perhaps the power of the sun attempted to create life in the middle of rocks. Christian apologists saw a lot to love in the idea that sea foam could give forth earth since Genesis chapter 1 verse 20 literally said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creatures that have life. And they adored the thought that heated air moving through soil could make animals, since that's almost word for word how God made Adam. By the 1600s, spontaneous generation was broader, bigger, and more deeply entrenched than ever. There had always been ample evidence for spontaneous generation. Flies came out of rotting fruit, maggots grew on rotting meat. Sometimes a salamander would form straight out of your campfire and flee out into the dark. After Aristotle, this empirical knowledge was bolstered by a theoretical system of life, which seemed to answer questions not just about bugs and rodents, but about all animals, and sex, and inheritance. With Averroes, the theory now also extended to the ultimate product of confirmation bias, astrology. 
And between the Christian scholars like Aquinas, who were influenced by Averroes, and even those who predated Averroes, like Augustine, all of these ideas became assimilated with the ultimate knowledge, biblical truth. That's when the recipes started pumping out. There had always been some recipes. Most of the existent Greek and Roman descriptions of begonia don't read like explanations of why bees grow out of bulls. They read as instructions on how to get bees out of bulls. Take this one from the poet Virgil, who writes specifically to say what beekeepers do if they run out of bees. First, they choose a narrow place, small enough for this purpose. They enclose it with a confined roof of tiles, walls close together, and add four slanting window lights facing the four winds. Then they search out a bullock, just jutting his horns out of a two-year-old's forehead. The breath from both its nostrils and its mouth is stifled despite its struggles, it is beaten to death, and its flesh pounded to a pulp through the intact hide. They leave it lying like this in prison, and strew broken branches under its flanks, thyme and fresh rosemary. This is done when the westerlies begin to stir the waves, before the meadows brighten with their new colors, before the twittering swallow hangs her nest from the eaves. Meanwhile, the moisture, warming in the softened bone, ferments, and creatures of a type marvelous to see swarm together, without feet at first, but soon with whirring wings as well, and more and more try the clear air until they burst out like rain pouring from summer clouds or arrows from the twanging bows whenever the lightly armed Parthians first join battle. If you could make bees, and you couldn't, of course, probably what these bedraggled beekeepers were getting out of Virgil's recipe was an infestation of bee-looking hoverflies, which wouldn't have done them a bit of good in the honey-making department. They might have made decent pollinators, though, so there was a certain theoretical usefulness for producing these insects, bee or not. Most things that could be spontaneously generated, however, were not useful. Nobody needed more flies. There were flies everywhere. Frogs and eels and oysters could all be delicious, but there was no reason or means to farm them. Scorpions were believed to come out of clay, but that was more a reason to avoid clay, you know? In short, most of the stuff you could make, you didn't want to. Nevertheless, in the early 17th century, people started writing recipes. Like, speaking of scorpions, here's how you make them according to Jean-Baptiste von Helmont. Carve an indentation in a brick, fill it with crushed basil, and cover the brick with another so that the indentation is completely sealed. Expose the two bricks to sunlight, and you will find that within a few days, fumes from the basil, acting as a leavening agent, will have transformed the vegetable matter into veritable scorpions. And here's another fun one from von Hellman. If a soiled shirt is placed in the opening of a vessel containing grains of wheat, the reaction of the leaven in the shirt with fumes from the wheat will, after approximately 21 days, transform the wheat into mice. Or take this recipe from our old buddy Athanasius Kircher for making flies. Collect a number of fly cadavers and crush them slightly. Put them on a brass plate and sprinkle the macerate with honey water. You will see otherwise invisible worms, which then become winged, perceptible little flies, and increase in size to animated, full-fledged specimens. 
Von Helmont and Kircher weren't publishing these recipes in order to corner the market on some weird new hook cuisine. The instructions they printed, which included ones for snakes, frogs, spiders, and more, were illustrative of the weird moment they lived in, a time where Aristotelian theory was meeting experimentation. Aristotle had compiled his data on spontaneous generation through observation and witness testimony, but what he hadn't thought to do, what nobody had thought to do, was to try to replicate those observations. But in 1600s Europe, that seemed like a pretty good idea. Since Averroes had codified a way for Aristotle's spontaneous generation to be predictable, it only made sense to use those predictions to test the theory. And according to those early experimenters, it worked. Let's just focus on Kircher and von Helmont, since they not only claimed to have successfully generated animals and published recipes for how to do so, but also because each of them were giants in their fields. We've talked about Kircher a number of times now. He's often called the German Leonardo da Vinci because of his similarly broad brilliance. He was perhaps the first person to view microbes under a microscope, and perhaps the first person to hypothesize that said microorganisms caused disease. He did some of the earliest scientific work in volcanology in 1638 when he had himself lowered into the active crater of Vesuvius to observe its fiery insides. He was one of the first people to project an image onto a screen with light, and one of the first Europeans to build a working magnetic clock. Still, Kircher's bad ideas far outstrip his good ones, and some of them are really, truly out there. And it's those that we've spent most of our time talking about before, of course. He perhaps either built the Katzenklaver or else came up with the idea for it, the Katzenklaver being a musical instrument that was made of spikes that were shot through the tails of cats to make them meow on command, and in the chromatic scale, no less. Kircher believed he had built a perpetual motion machine. He hadn't. That he could decipher Egyptian hieroglyphs. He couldn't. That he'd worked out the formation of fossils. Definitely not. And that he could build talking robots. He did but only by cheating with a speaking tube. He thought that animals transform from one species into another as they travel to different climates, and that other animals could be interbred to form novel species. And, of course, he thought he had proved spontaneous generation through his experimental recipes. Jean-Baptiste von Helmont introduced the term gas to science, discovered carbon dioxide, and performed a five-year-long experiment with a willow tree in which he determined that during that time, the tree gained more than 160 pounds while the soil it lived in had barely been depleted at all. From this, he concluded that trees absorb water rather than soil. Oh, this story is tough to tell. Because <laughs> it's so far-reaching. There isn't time here to cover every little element, every thread or branch or tributary of spontaneous generation. I should say that... In the 1600s, not everything was coming up roses for the idea. Back when Aristotle was writing about it, he proposed that there were some animals that could be generated and others that couldn't. Those that had to have parents, he called perfect, whereas those that might just spring up out of some foam or sand or meat, he called imperfect. What exactly Aristotle meant by perfect and imperfect animals is complicated and confusing and a bit contradictory. But in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas had smoothed it all out. The big boy of all Christian theologians saw perfection through a Christian theological lens. 
There were, Aquinas said, the animals that were perfect creations of God, and these were the ones that required semen and the sun, both of God's great influences, to reproduce. And then there were the imperfect animals. They could be generated by the sun's influence on inanimate material alone, because they weren't as complicated. They were simple little bugs and mice and such, which didn't have all the parts and organs and uh, souls of the perfect ones. One of the great things about Aquinas's perfection distinction is that it helped explain a critical story from the Bible. According to Genesis, Noah had loaded two of every animal into his 300 by 50 by 30 cubit ark. That certainly seemed like a lot of animals to press into such a small space, especially if it was going to float. But after Aquinas, the assumption was that the Bible didn't really mean two of every animal, only two of every perfect animal. The imperfect ones didn't need saving, since spontaneous generation would replenish them when the flood was over. In 1675, Athanasius Kircher himself had published Arca Noah, in which he offered a detailed accounting of how Noah's Ark could have been packed to include all animals, minus those that generated spontaneously and those that could be bred through hybridization, such as giraffes, which he thought came from a leopard mating with a camel, and armadillos, which were the result of hedgehogs stooping turtles. He also excluded most New World animals because, well, then it wouldn't have worked. Anyway, the reason I bring up Aquinas' idea of imperfection is that it was the part of spontaneous generation that was starting to fall apart at the same time everything else seemed to be going so well. In the 1600s, the microscope was first coming into use, and one of the people who was using it was Jan Swammerdam. I have talked about Swammerdam many times, but I'll never pass up the opportunity to talk about him again because I find his story to be one of the most amazing in scientific history, and I don't want anyone to miss it. Jan Swammerdam is the picture of the conflicted man. He was the son of an Amsterdam apothecary and raised, as most were, to be loyal to God and Aristotle. In 1673, when he was 36 years old, he fell under the sway of Antoinette Bourgeon, a Flemish mystic who preached that the end times were upon the world. His father had taught him to believe in Aristotle, and Antoinette Bourgeon taught him to renounce all worldly practices. But Jan Swammerdam repeatedly failed to do either. He wanted to respect Aristotle, and he wanted to reject earthly goods, but he was like an addict, a sinner, who returned over and over again to his bad habits. He was ashamed, he was afraid, but it didn't matter, he just couldn't help himself, and over and over again, he returned to his siren song, Insects. Swammerdam just loved bugs. He loved them so, so much that even when Antoinette told him that his concentration on them was endangering his immortal soul, he still just couldn't give them up. He tried. Oh, how he tried. He even burned his book on silkworms when she told him to. But still he went back again and again. Before he met Antoinette, Swammerdam had already betrayed his other spiritual teacher, Aristotle. What Swammerdam saw when he put his little bugly friends under the microscope was that there was nothing imperfect about them. They were complex, possessing organs and joints and all the other stuff of their larger living cousins. In 1669, he had published The General History of Insects, or General Treatise on Little Bloodless Animals. It said that Aristotle's king bee was, in actuality, a queen bee. It showed that the caterpillar already contained within it the legs and wings of the butterfly it would one day become. It included detailed drawings on the bodies of bugs from all over Europe, 
blown up for the world to appreciate in all their perfection. His father was so disappointed in his rebellion against Aristotle that he cut off support to him. So sure, in some ways the 1600s weren't going as well as they could have been for spontaneous generation, but to most, Swammerdam's observations didn't seem like much of a problem. Besides which, there were other ways in which the microscope seemed very much to support spontaneous generation, which we'll get back to in a little bit. There was this codified system which unified a variety of scientific fields, the Bible, and the works of Aristotle. And now it also had the support of some of the greatest scientists of the age. Athanasius Kircher and Jean-Baptiste von Helmont had both said that they hadn't just witnessed animals being created out of nothing, they had created some themselves. If you were interested in biology in the 17th century, there were really only two ways you could react to that news. You could either believe it, or you could believe it so much that you wanted to see it for yourself. Francesco Reddy did the latter. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash the constant. And by University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive and UCI DCE can prepare you to stand out. According to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, continuing education correlates to higher income. It opens doors to networking opportunities, better jobs, and career progression. Not to mention that learning more stuff makes you more interesting as a human being. UCI DCE has been serving lifelong learning and skills development needs for the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. They offer over 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health services, law, finance, and more. Some programs can even prepare individuals to sit for industry certifications or provide continuing education credits towards recertification. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis, and non-formal application is required to enroll. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. At UCI DCE, enrollment is open to everyone. So, go to ce.uci.edu slash learn now to learn now. 
Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash learn now, or follow the link in the show notes. Francesco Reddy was born in Arezzo in February of 1626. He took after his father, Gregorio Reddy, a successful physician in Florence. Francesco received his own doctoral degree from the University of Pisa when he was 21, returning to Florence to practice medicine just like dear old dad. Soon he became the head physician to the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Ferdinando de' Medici. It was while working at the Medici court that he first truly distinguished himself. In 1664, he wrote Observations on Vipers, in which he took a cold, empirical eye to toxicology. At the time, there were a host of fallacious beliefs about vipers and their venom. It was said that vipers drank wine, and that their venom was actually an intrinsic part of their fangs, produced in their gallbladders and then infused into the enamel itself, I guess. The only cure for this venom, people thought, was to use the viper's head in the making of an antidotal potion. Reddy showed that all of this was wrong. He showed that venom was only toxic if it entered the bloodstream, that it was produced in glands in the back of their heads, which is delivered through syringe-like hollows in the fangs. He discovered more true facts about snakes, even then he dispelled false ones. Francesco Reddy was like the Jan Swammerdam of snakes. So, when he heard that Athanasius Kircher's book, Mundus Subterraneus, included a recipe for making snakes, he had to try it. According to Kircher, all it took was to place some pieces of rotting snake meat on ground that was regularly warmed by the sun and then expose the mess to fresh rainwater. In a few days, baby snakes would come crawling out of the ground. But when Francesco Reddy tried out Kircher's recipe, it didn't work. So he tried again, and again got nothing. No matter how warm the ground, how rotten the meat, or how rain the water, he couldn't succeed in, quote, the generation of these blessed little handmade snakes. Aww. Now suspicious not just of Kircher's snake recipe, but of the whole enterprise of spontaneous generation, Reddy concocted an experiment, a really brilliant experiment, arguably the first control experiment ever performed. The most common and seemingly incontrovertible example of spontaneous generation was maggots appearing on rotten meat. Anybody living in the 1600s or before had experienced this because everybody living in the 1600s or before was surrounded by dead things. How could anyone fail to believe in spontaneous generation when maggots were popping up all over the place? Well, Reddy had a way. He started out with six jars. In the first two, he dropped pieces of fish. In the second two, he put pieces of veal. And in the third pair, he plopped some inanimate objects, his record of what is unclear. So let's just say doorknobs. Then he corked one of each of these jars and left the other three open. So, there was one set of jars with fish, veal, and a doorknob in them exposed to the elements, and there was another set, also with fish, veal, and a doorknob in them, that were sealed shut. After a few days, there were maggots in the open fish and veal jars, but none in the sealed ones. 
or either of the doorknob jars, obviously. Reddy thought he was on to something, but he wasn't yet sure. Maybe the maggots failed to grow in the sealed jars because they didn't have air, or didn't have an open line to the generative power of the heavens through the cork. So, he did a second experiment, three jars this time, each filled with rotting meat. One of them was left open, and one of them was corked shut. But the third was covered with gauze, so that air, and or the heavens, would be able to freely circulate inside, but anything larger could not. The corked jar produced no maggots. The open jar produced many maggots. And the gauzed jar? Oh man, the gauzed jar. I mean, this would have been a fantastic experiment. No matter how it worked out, it was systematic, logical, and controlled. But the results from the gauzed jar are even better than you'd expect. The gauzed jar did produce maggots, but not on the meat. Reddy discovered them on top of the gauze, dying of starvation. Reddy knew why, and you obviously know why too, but he still performed some more experiments to be absolutely sure. He kept the maggots in the jars and watched as they were replaced by flies. Flies that, when put in another jar with more meat, produced more maggots, which then became flies again. He even came up with a control group for this phase, showing that when dead flies were put in a sealed jar with the meat, they did not produce maggots. There was nothing to do with Kircher's recipes going on here. The flies were laying eggs. There are three ways in which Francesca Reddy's seemingly perfect experiment failed to totally end the belief in imperfect animals. For starters, Reddy himself didn't believe that all spontaneous generation was wrong. He thought his experiment showed that life couldn't come from dead flesh or from doorknobs, but he still felt that some life was spontaneously generated, namely that some insects were born out of living plants, like fig wasps and aphids. In addition, Reddy was hesitant to go against Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. He knew what tended to happen to people who did. Galileo had been jailed, Petrus Ramus was assassinated, Giovanni Bruno was burnt at the stake. So Reddy, understandably, soft-footed his conclusions, leaving it for another scientist, the microscopist Antoine von Leeuwenhoek, to make his and Swammerdam's subtext text. But, ironically, the microscope was the other way that spontaneous generation lived on. Through his microscope, Leeuwenhoek showed pretty much once and for all that all the tiny little imperfect insects weren't, and that all the things that seemed to generate spontaneously didn't. Just as Swammerdam and Reddy had hinted at, they all mated and produced eggs just at a scale too small for the naked eye to see. But Leeuwenhoek had also discovered something else through his fantastic microscope. Well, lots of things, actually, including sperm, which set off a whole bunch of confusion. We talked about this back in Let's Talk About Sex, Babies, and I'm now thinking it might be worth a listen, even if the sound quality is lacking. But wherever he put his microscope, Leeuwenhoek discovered that there were microscopic little creatures, animalcules, he called them. After Swammerdam and Reddy and Leeuwenhoek, spontaneous generation had to pick up stakes and move. Most scientists admitted that animals, perfect or not, were generated sexually. Except for eels. Lots of people held on to eels 
as the one exception for a long, long time. But that is a story for the Patreon secret feed, I think. Anyway, aside from eels, animals couldn't be spontaneously generated. But maybe animalcules could be. When Leeuwenhoek or anyone else with a microscope tuned their instruments towards the world, they found these animalcules everywhere, on everything. There were tons of the little buggers, literally tons, yet none of them appeared to have sex. And no matter how hard people looked, they never saw any eggs. To many, this didn't indicate a mystery, though, since there was already a perfectly good explanation for where the animalcules were coming from. They were being spontaneously generated. This, I think we should admit, made a lot of sense. After all, the actual explanation for how bacteria reproduce by dividing in two doesn't sound a lot less extraordinary and weird than the possibility that they formed out of inert matter or energy. It's the same observation problem that always powered spontaneous generation. Cell division wouldn't be seen until 1835, whereas little microbes showing up out of nowhere was something anyone with a microscope saw happen regularly. There's a sense in which, by the early 1700s, spontaneous generation had been cut down at the kneecaps. The interactions of the sun and stars and earth and planets and sea and flesh had once been responsible for creating mice and flies and bees and frogs. All kinds of bugs, reptiles, rodents, even human beings could be spontaneously generated, Averroes and Augustine had suggested. But after Swammerdam, Reddy, and Leeuwenhoek, the purview of abiogenesis had been dramatically reduced to encompass only bacteria, protozoa, viruses, the tiniest, simplest, most imperfect life around. In terms of number of animals or species, let alone sheer biomass, however, spontaneous generation had never been more powerful or more prominent. There were a lot of mice in the world, sure, but animalcules were everywhere. There were millions of them on every surface a person touched. Indeed, there were millions of them on the surface of every person. If they were all being generated spontaneously, then that meant life was being created all the time, billions of times a day. One man, in particular, saw this new version of spontaneous generation as not just remarkable in itself, but as a final chance to resuscitate the old one. This, I believe, is now the fifth time the Georges-Louis Leclerc, Comte de Buffon, has come up this year. And I think it'll be the last, too. We've seen the eminent French naturalist defend the idea that whales were fish. We've seen him make fumbling attempts at determining the age of the Earth. We've seen him make some really yucky presumptions about human ratiation. But this one might be Buffon's most embarrassing fumble, because he was already so close to being proven wrong the second it came out of his mouth. Buffon had spent a lot of time looking at animalcules through his microscope and had concluded, like many scientists, that they did not reproduce sexually. But that was only half of the issue. Buffon decided that these little living bits were literally that. Living bits. Pieces of life that must aggregate like mold into larger animals. Every living thing, he theorized, was composed of masses of animalcules, which joined together to form mice and snakes and bulls and bees. When an animal died, the animalcules that comprised it began to shed off into the air and earth, and that was why carcasses decomposed as they did. 
The re-individuated animalcules then floated about until they ran into others, at which point they began fusing into some new creature again. It was spontaneous generation by way of a sort of cellular reincarnation. And Buffon was keen to convince people it was happening all around them. In the late 1740s, he specifically tried to convince a British biologist and Catholic priest by the name of John Tuberville Needham. Needham found Buffon's hypothesis compelling, but he'd been looking into animalcules for himself and was convinced that at least some of them were complete creatures unto themselves. So he dedicated himself to finding a way to work out which animalcules were independent, spontaneously generated things, and which were codependent, eternal mechanica, as Buffon called them. Needham devised what he thought to be the perfect experiment. He started with mutton gravy, presuming that meat in its gravy form was more or less the perfect distillation of mechanica freed from their previous form. He plopped that gravy in some test tubes and heated them to kill off any microorganisms inside. Then he sealed them with corks and left them in the hot summer sun to go about their generative business. After a few days, he put the gravy under the microscope and discovered that it was absolutely teeming with animalcules. New animalcules. Spontaneous animalcules. After more than two millennia, Needham had finally delivered the conclusive word. Spontaneous generation was real. If you're wondering what happened here, how Needham had screwed this up, you weren't the only one. Another priest and biologist, the Italian Lazzaro Spallanzani, read Needham's results and knew that something had to be wrong. Spallanzani was well-liked and well-known among the scientific elite of Europe, but aside from offering an explanation for how thrown stones skip across water, he hadn't distinguished himself as a scientist per se. Still, he didn't believe that microbes were spontaneously generated, and decided to take the elite Needham and Buffon head-on with a better version of their gravy experiments. Spallanzani identified two points at which the gravy experiment could have broken down. For starters, maybe Needham had failed to cook his gravy at a high enough temperature or for a long enough time to kill off whatever was in it. Even if the vials had been properly sterilized, though, Spallanzani saw another problem. Air expands when heated, so if you heated a vial to boiling while it was sealed, the pressure would cause it to shatter. So Needham had to wait and cork his vials after they had been heated. Even if the vials had been totally sanitized during the cook, there was still time for animalcules in the air to get back into the tubes before they were closed off again. So Spallanzani's variation on the gravy experiment remedied both of these issues. He heated his flasks for longer and at higher temperatures, but he also pumped the air out of them so that they could be sealed during the process without exploding. And one last brilliant change. Instead of mutton gravy, Spallanzani used a clear chicken broth. Clear, that is, as long as nothing was growing in it. When things grew in it, it became cloudy, and that gave Spallanzani a way to check his vials for growth without opening them up and contaminating the experiment. After boiling his broth in sealed tubes for an hour, it remained clear for a day, for a week, for a month, presumably forever, or until the tubes were opened. Then the broth would cloud over with life. Spallanzani published his results along with his explanation, 
that microbes are killed through boiling, but move through the air, contaminating any open container. They do not generate spontaneously. Case closed. Except that that is not how Needham saw it. He had posited that there was a vegetative force that affected living or once living but now dead things, which was what made the little critters in his gravy. When he read Spallanzani's results, he said he hadn't proved anything. Spallanzani thought that by cutting off the air from his test tubes, he had kept it clean of animalcules. But Needham didn't. He thought that the reason Spallanzani's bra stayed clear was because he had cut off its access not to contamination, but to the vegetative force that activated life. Needham's view wasn't terrible, really. In 1659, Robert Boyle had pumped the air out of a jar with a bird in it and proved that there was something in the atmosphere that made life possible and that it was the same thing that allowed fire to burn. Boyle's experiment was reproduced as entertainment all over the world. In 1768, John Derby would immortalize these shows in an oil painting entitled An Experiment on a Bird in the Air Pump, which you can see on the Vodacast app right now. So it was, in fact, totally reasonable to assume that Spallanzani's experiments had remained free of signs of life because they lacked the crucial element of life in the air. Needham and Spallanzani argued back and forth in scientific journals over who was right, but neither of them could prove anything. What they needed was a way to keep an experiment sterile, but at the same time, aerated. Like what Reddy had done a hundred years earlier with his gauzed-over jars. But nobody would work out a good way to do that for another hundred years. For that next century, the choice between whether to believe in spontaneous generation or not was sort of like a taste preference. After cell division was discovered by Hugo von Moll in 1835, the logic underlying spontaneous generation became a little more tortured, and the scientific establishment began leaning towards no, but plenty still thought that even if some cells divided, that didn't mean that they weren't also born out of the air, or from dead stuff, or a combination of the two. The next year, another German, physiologist Theodore Schwann, appeared to deal another blow to spontaneous generation. While investigating fermentation, he boiled beer mid-brew and showed that afterwards, alcohol no longer formed. At the time, most believed that it was something in the air that caused fermentation, but Schwann's experiment seemed to prove it was an organism within the liquid itself. Then he took things a step further. He sterilized the very air itself, heating it to an incredibly hot temperature within a glass bulb. Like Spallanzani's chicken broth, the air within the glass bulb remained sterile until it was opened. This seems like a pretty good proof that air wasn't generating life, but merely accommodating it. And that was the end of Not So Fast! 20 years later, with spontaneous generation looking less and less tenable, it found its last great champion, Felix Archimede Pouchet. Pouchet was a professor of medicine at a small university in Rouen, France, where he also founded the Rouen Museum of Natural History in 1828. Other than the museum, he kept a pretty low profile until, suddenly, out of the blue, when he was 60 years old, he decided to stand up for a spontaneous generation, and more specifically, against germ theory. In 1858, 
Pouchet wrote to the Academy of Science in Paris to tell them that he had repeated Schwann's experiment with sterilized air in glass bulbs, and when he had done it, the bulbs filled spontaneously with microorganisms. The Academy was skeptical. In particular, one of its star members of the time, Louis Pasteur. Yeah, the guy who created the rabies vaccine and the cholera vaccine and possibly the anthrax vaccine, although he may have plagiarized that, and pasteurization, who helped advance germ theory and sanitation and microbiology, the great Louis Pasteur was on the case. Pasteur was a relatively young man, just 37 years old, and so he addressed the elder Pouchet privately, writing him a letter saying that he believed Pouchet's experiments had somehow been contaminated. Pouchet disagreed, but he reran the experiment with improved controls and said that he still found life growing within his glass bulb. Pasteur replied more publicly this time, saying that Pouchet had not properly sterilized his equipment before replicating Schwann's experiment, and that this accounted for his results. Pouchet wasn't hearing it. The next year, in 1859, he published Heterogeny, or Treaties on Spontaneous Generation, in which he repeated in detail his claim of finding life within Schwann's sterilized bulbs. The book was a full-throated defense of spontaneous generation a new kind of spontaneous generation, one discovered by him. Animals did not spontaneously generate, Pouchet said, as Aristotle believed. Nor were there tiny immortal machina that formed into earthworms and toadstools, as Buffon had argued. It wasn't even true that tiny animalcules popped into existence out of thin air. But, said Pouchet, eggs did. What were spontaneously generated weren't germs but the eggs of germs. Too small for microbiologists like Pasteur to observe, and that is why he had trouble believing in them. But Pouchet had discovered them in his glass bulb. The book made a big splash, and on January 30th, 1860, the Academy of Science decided to offer a prize. 2,599 francs for whoever could put the issue of spontaneous generation to rest one way or the other. Pasteur decided he would take the prize, and he knew which way it was going to go. He revisited Spallanzani's chicken broth experiment, but using yeast instead. His results showed that the sealed vials remained sterile after heating. But Pouchet claimed that he had also rerun Spallanzani's experiment, and wouldn't you know it, found life in his version of the broth, which he made out of hay. All right. That's it, said Pasteur. It was time to settle this once and for all. While the fight was now being waged between Pasteur and Pouchet, it was still being fought on essentially the same ground as Spallanzani and Needham. What was necessary was a flask that kept out microbes, but let in air. Then you could run the broth experiment and know for sure whether contamination or spontaneous generation was at fault. So Pasteur invented such a flask. He blew the glass himself. The base was large and spherical, a typical boiling flask, which he filled with meat broth. Then he heated and sterilized the broth. So far, the same as ever. But then came the critical part. He heated the neck of the flask until it was red hot and malleable. And then he stretched it out. He elongated it until it was like a long, thin drinking straw. And then he bent it like a long, thin, bendy straw, or more like the neck of a swan. And that's what it's called today, 
the swan neck flask. The idea was that the neck was open to the air, but very slowly, causing bacteria in the air to get stuck in moisture along the journey towards the bulb. So, if something grew in the sanitized broth, it had to grow spontaneously. Which, of course, it did not. The broth remained lifeless for as long as Pasteur wanted, because, he said, the bacteria were getting caught in the neck. He could prove it. When he tipped the flask over and let the broth wind its way down the thin curve, the effect was lost. Life began growing in it. Pasteur's swan neck flask experiments were elegantly ingenious. They went down in history as some of the most brilliant bits of science ever performed, along with Spallanzani's and Francesco Redi's. All three great steps in understanding brought about in answer to the same errant idea, spontaneous generation. Felix Boucher was indignant. He spit and yelled and bah humbugged the swan neck flasks. He even wrote another book in which he made fun of Pasteur and his germ theory. But he couldn't counter the results scientifically. He eventually withdrew from the contest, and the Academy gave the award to Louis Pasteur. Like that, spontaneous generation faded into obscurity. One of the longest-lived and most widely believed ideas in human history now just a footnote in the annals of science, a $300 question on Jeopardy, a piece of vexing bar trivia. Even now, this is a simplified telling. There's no denying the brilliance of past year's swan necks, but the Academy was arguably already in the can for germ theory. And sure, that was in part because of the science, but it may have also been at least in part about the philosophy and the theology. Since Averroes and Augustine, spontaneous generation had been as much about God as it was about nature. And that only increased when spontaneous generation became relegated to microbial life, where it might take place billions of times a day. That would mean something even more profound about the world than Aristotle's theory had. Just what it meant, however, depended upon your point of view. It certainly seemed to have to do with God, though, right? But what did it say? From the 1700s on, the role of God in the universe, or whether there even was a God in the universe, was being considered in radical and numerous new ways. At the same time, the question of whether bacteria were being generated spontaneously sat on a knife's edge. Any and all combinations of positions on those questions feel viable. For instance, Say you believed in spontaneous generation and also believed that God took an active role in the universe. Well, those are easy to square because all of that bacteria was being constantly generated by God's hand. The contrapositive of that also seems easy. If you don't believe in God and also don't believe in spontaneous generation, then you've got nothing to worry about. Life doesn't come out of nowhere and neither is God responsible for making it. No problem. But now let's jumble things up. Say that you don't believe in God, but you do believe in spontaneous generation. Well, that's also totally compatible. Your position is that life is commonplace. It pops into lowly being all the time, so no God is necessary to explain it. And if we reverse that one, it works too. There's no spontaneous generation because life is special, created only by God, and not something that just happens without notice on your kitchen counter. And that one was the prevailing theological view when Pasteur published his Swan's Neck experiments. So, of course, the Academy liked them. Really, 
If you can strip theology out of it, the debate over spontaneous generation had always been about just how special life was. How different was living matter from non-living matter? Was life something that just naturally came out of non-life in a fairly ordinary way? Or was life something rarer and more removed from the inorganic world of rocks and clouds and stars? Either one of those poles could be seen as either sacred or profane, miraculous or humdrum. This debate is still pertinent today, of course. When we look out into the night sky, we can't help but wonder who might be out there looking back at us. Is Earth unique or completely ordinary or somewhere in between? We don't know. Our ignorance is even more profound than that, though. We now can say with a high degree of confidence that all life on Earth is descended from a single common origin. The DNA of humans, lions, bees, snakes, trees, and even bacteria show that everything we see shares a solitary ancestor. Whether life began on Earth through divine intervention, or in a primordial soup, or an interstellar impact, or the replication of silicon crystals, or any of the other theories posited or as of yet unposited, we know that every living thing we've ever seen shares that genesis. But that doesn't necessarily mean that life only began here that one time. Maybe there were other early replicators that came to be before our tree of life got planted, or at the same time, or even later. Maybe life tried to take hold many times over the course of this planet's history, and our DNA-based contender was simply the only one to make it. It's even possible that whatever forces first manifest that early proto-life still persist today. Because if some sort of competing version of life had the good fortune to be born right now, it would be immediately gulped up by the trillions and trillions of animalcules that inhabit nearly every square inch of habitable territory. We could one day discover that there is something like spontaneous generation going on all around us after all. Too little, too late. But probably not. Music for today's episode provided by Lee Rosevere and Epidemic Sound. Special thanks go out to all the Patreon supporters who make this show possible, especially Mark Royko, Kelby Dolata, Betty Steam, Elizabeth Kramer, and Salty Ryan. Keep it salty, Ryan. If you want to join them, go to patreon.com slash the constant now to sign up. All patrons get access to the secret feed, where I drop bonus episodes, side stories, live recordings, and sometimes just insights into my meandering, broken psyche. Give us the old rating and review, follow us on the social media, and remember to brush and floss. We're a proud part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to Soonish, where Wade Roush has just dropped a really fascinating story that's kind of in conversation with our Long Story Short series. Why do we switch back and forth between daylight saving and standard time? Where did standard time and time zones even come from? And do they do more harm than good? It turns out that there are some new ideas for ways to organize time. And to hear all about them, head over to soonishpodcast.org and look for the episode, This Is How You Win the Time War. And listen up for a cameo 
by some very charming, handsome-sounding gentlemen. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where the Lincoln Park Lion House is back in action, will the bees soon follow? This has been The Constant. Aristotle contemplating a busted nut. (laughs) It works on on several levels. Mm -hmm.